Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. All right. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about cannabis. Yes, we're going to dive deep into marijuana. And in previous podcasts, I've talked about marijuana, cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, and so much more. And under really the lens of compounds of controversy. But today I wanted to bring on a guy who I can tell we're already going to be good friends, Len May. And in case you don't know Len, Len is the CEO of Endo Health, and he is the OG in the cannabis industry. He's got a background founding one of the first cannabis dispensary chains in California, and we get into that on the podcast where we talk about just what it's like to have the feds shut down your business. But he's also worked in cannabis activism, has won numerous awards, traveled all around the world in the name of the cannabis plant, and now has a company called Endo Health. And what does EndoHealth do? And specifically, what does the EndoCanna DNA report do? We go through this on the podcast. So if you're listening to this, I encourage you to also bring up the YouTube channel because we go through my report on the podcast. Yes, I open the kimono like always to talk about what are my unique genetic differences when it comes to cannabis intake? Why is that important? And specifically, why do things like anxiety and THC come up? Why does opioid dependence seem to ring true for me when it comes to genetic predispositions? And also, why is the weather in Amsterdam causing me to have different variances in energy? It all has a genetic correlation. And we're going to cover it today on the podcast. So let's hand it over to my conversation with Len May. And if you want the show notes for this one and you want to check out cannabis genetics for yourself, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash Len. That's L-E-N. Now for my conversation with the OG of the cannabis industry, Len May. Len, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. You know, sometimes with these shows, I, I should just record the conversation from the outset because you and I were just kicking it earlier uh, yeah. and talking about a little bit of an interesting connection through Philadelphia. And it begs the question of how does someone go from Philadelphia, which is, I grew up out in the suburbs, but right. uh, you know, you grew up downtown. How does someone go from Philadelphia to LA and from LA to cannabis. Do you mind just connecting some dots for us here? Yeah, I think just a little bit of background. Uh, I grew up, I was born in Lithuania and I immigrated, my parents immigrated when I was like six years old. And uh, I was the kid in school who would sit there and uh, I would daydream. All these different thoughts would come to my head and I uh, just couldn't pay attention. It wasn't that I was uh, hyperactive, but all the... So later on in life, I got diagnosed with ADD. There wasn't mm-hmm. the H part of it. And they started putting me in all kinds of prescription medication. And uh, some of it worked, but they all sucked. It made me feel like shit. So Are we talking like Ritalin or something else? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, mm-hmm. and I don't remember all of them, but there was like three or four different kinds that were putting me on. And uh, then I was hanging out with some kids in school and they asked me if I wanted to share a cigarette. So I was like, the, you know, I'm going to be a cool kid. I'm going to smoke cigarettes with these older kids. And they passed me a cigarette. And I took a drag of it and inhaled. And I started coughing. And it wasn't a cigarette. It was <laughs> cannabis. I was like, but what happened was I went back to class. And the windows that were open in my, my brain sort of slowed down. And I could focus. And I'm like, holy shit. I just found my medicine. And mm-hmm. I started consuming that. Later on in life, my parents would catch me and they ended up kicking me out of the house and actually calling the cops on me, trying to have me arrested, old school. But the irony of it is that they consumed the formulations that I helped to develop now. 
uh, <laughs> their problems. So it came back full circle. But uh, just to fast forward, uh, I became an activist. I became the uh, president of the Cannabis Action Network. I held a rally in Philadelphia in Independence Hall. For those of you that don't know, that's where the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence is, and all written on hemp paper, by the way. And I had this activist who was speaking. Uh, she was Her name is Elvie Masika, and she was one of the first people to get medically uh, uh, federally prescribed cannabis for her degenerative glaucoma. So uh, the federal government used to have a program where they would prescribe or allow 16 people at its height to have medical cannabis, even though it was Schedule 1, which the government's saying there is no medicinal purposes. On the other hand, they're prescribing and allowing these people to get this uh, cannabis medicine that's cultivated in Mississippi and had a USDA label. So she would uh, take out her tin, take out her pre-roll, uh, from the government and smoke. And I was like, man, this is the future. It's going to be legal in Pennsylvania. And this was 1993. So uh, <laughs> it, took, it took a little while. It took a few years. But uh, in, in doing so, uh, you know, cannabis was uh, definitely a part of my life. But I met a girl and she was like, hey, you have to get into it. And I was, I was a music buyer for Tower Records. For those of you old heads who know Tower Records. I remember I'm, Tower Records. I'm a music guy. So that was, yeah. my, that was my background. I was like, I don't want to work corporate. So she's like, uh, you have to get a real job. So I went to work for Price Waterhouse at the time. I did that for a while and became a, <clears throat> then I quit that and became a commercial real estate broker. And uh, uh, she and I, she was an actress. So we ended up going back and forth to LA and finally decided to move. So I moved over and I was sitting in an office, a real estate office. And these guys came in and they uh, wanted to get, they were talking to another realtor about opening an alternative pharmacy. The guy came over and I don't know what these guys really want. Talk to them. At the end of the day, they wanted to open up a dispensary and mm -hmm. they didn't know what, uh, you know, what to do. So I asked them for paperwork where they have, they didn't have anything. I helped them get the space and they offered me a partnership. So I became a partner and we opened up the first dispensary in Orange County, California called uh, Cush Kingdom. And I sort of used my idea of this, uh, Keller Williams kind of model that I used to have to open up additional places. So uh, under the same flag. So we were the first, I don't want to say we're the first franchise because I have no idea. Maybe there's other ones, but we were one of the first established franchises. They were open up under the same umbrella. And one of my partners called me up one day and he's like, Hey, I'm sitting here with corrupt from dog pound Snoop's uh, group. And mm -hmm. he wants to name a strain after him. I was like, uh, cool. Does he have a computer? And so I sent him a, an agreement. We signed and we were the exclusive home of Corrupts Kush. And uh, the next uh, next year or like seven, eight months later, we did the same thing with uh, Method Man from uh, Wu-Tang Clan. And we yeah. were the exclusive home of uh, uh, Method Man's Blackout OG. So we ended up opening five shops and we were the hip hop guys. And uh, Everybody in the hip hop world would come to us. They would wear our gear. We would give them like uh, free pre rolls and stuff. If you take a picture, wear our gear somewhere. So it's like the early days of social media and influencer marketing. Yeah, it was right? exactly it. It was so yeah. on Facebook, and and we were just blowing up. And then I get a call from my one of my managers in my store, and she's like, "Hey, uh, the feds are here. What do I do?" <laughs> I'm like whatever the fuck they tell you. <laughs> and it was like one after the other, uh, they shut us down. And the last shop was in Santa Ana that had a, a grow in it as well. And the guy from the department, this was the only one that I actually came to. Uh, and the, the guy from the department just was like, let's go for a walk. So we started walking. He's like, look, I have no problem with dope. My mom takes it for a cancer. And he said dope, and, uh, which was uh, interesting anyway. He's like, look, 14 days cease and desist. Nobody will prosecute. Just close down shop. And it was a, it was this whole quid pro quo because we got a little too big and they needed to make a, uh, you know, an example of us. Yeah. So we got shut down, but that, that, that allowed me a launching pad into sort of what I'm doing now mm -hmm. and uh, to understand, uh, where cannabis can be a personal experience for people. Yeah. And, and I want to come back to that activism side of things a little mm -hmm. bit later, particularly as it regards to the current schedule one of what probably shouldn't be a schedule one substance. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, you alluded to one of the benefits that you initially received from cannabis. And mm -hmm. for those listening to this show today, who may not necessarily have the perspective that uh, people who 
have used cannabis or have read the research uh, do. What are some of the, I mean, what are some of the benefits that one can gain by using uh, cannabinoids of different substances or different strains or I guess different cannabinoids? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think I'm going to answer that by giving a little bit of 101, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I really believe that people don't understand or don't know about the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, let's, let's where, dig into this because, I mean, we only discovered this, what, 20 years ago, a little bit more than that? Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Raphael Michon uh, discovered mm-hmm. the endocannabinoid system in Israel, who I had the pleasure of meeting. What a fascinating person. That I've wanted I, to meet him for a long time. Absolutely should get a Nobel Prize for his discovery of the primary regulatory system that's in our bodies. Yeah. I don't think people know, and you, you're talking about, you know, with people about, you know, biohacking and doing things that you can do uh, for your body, but without the use of your endocannabinoid system and being able to modulate that, then you're missing a whole system. So the endocannabinoid system, think of it this way. It's like a puppet master. It modulates all the other systems and the way that it's different is that it actually, it's like salmon swimming upstream. It gets signals from all your other systems and it processes those signals. And then it tells the other systems uh, through its own endogenous endocannabinoids, what chemicals they need to release in order to modulate those systems. So the main goal of the endocannabinoid system is to bring balance within our entire body, uh, which is called homeostasis. Mm -hmm. And one of the primary ways that it does that it produces its own endogenous uh, endocannabinoids. So the first one's called anandamide. And mm-hmm. your listeners probably know this already, and it's in the repeat, but I'll, I'll, I have to kind of set the, the, the tone and the, and the base for this. Please so do. anandamide, anandamide's produced uh, mostly out of uh, the amygdala or the, the brain and central nervous system, uh, but for the most part, it's produced out of your brain. And uh, the word anand means bliss in Sanskrit. So mm-hmm. this is your bliss hormone. And the second uh, chemical that the uh, endocannabinoid system produces is called 2-AG, and it's mostly found in your immune and digestive system. So we produce these chemicals naturally. And what happens is a lot of people have deficiencies in our naturally producing endogenous endocannabinoids. And we're lucky that we found a plant in nature, which is cannabis, that has phytocannabinoids that sort of mimic the way the endogenous endocannabinoids work. And the other thing is we already have receptors built into our bodies to Mm -hmm. accept those phytocannabinoids. So cannabis is literally a part of us. And what my theory is that over the years of prohibition, because cannabis was part of a natural consumption diet and people didn't even know that because it would grow everywhere. Animals would eat it, it would be in our water supply, it would be in our foods. And we have something like that. a 5,000 year relationship with cannabis, right? Like there's oh, documents even, out of even China. Even longer than that. So they, yeah. they just found cannabis going back to uh, an area where, which is now Tibet, uh, have going back about uh, eight, 9,000 years ago. Wow. So it's been, it's been a relationship with us for as long as we can possibly remember, there's uh, ceremonies in in ancient uh, Israel that they found that, that were used for uh, like incense holders that had cannabis in it. It's been it's been used in the Shen Dynasty in China. It's been used for thousands of years uh, as a uh, spiritual religious practice. It also is a therapeutic herb for different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, but just to remember one thing, and this is really important. The amounts that were used for thousands of years were minimal amounts of THC. There's a balance in this amazing plant that has these cannabinoids. And like I said, uh, anandamide. So THC, when you get THC from the plant, from the cannabis plant, it uh, binds to CB1 receptor that's in your central nervous system in your brain, and it mimics how anandamide works. So that gives you that that, uh, bliss. So that's the euphoric part of it that actually accentuates... uh, What's, what's called munchies, you know, makes you makes you hungry, uh, but it doesn't make you hungry for kale. It makes you hungry for things that excite you, that give you that that dopamine hit and an antibiotic. That's what it does. So it's salt, fat, and sugar that you're mm-hmm. you're not you're not going to your Seven Eleven to get you know your your lettuce, your you mm-hmm. whatever it is. So that's one thing. But the other thing is it works as an analgesic, for instance. So mm-hmm. it blocks those receptors of pain, uh, etc. And then CB, CBD. Actually, there's an enzyme that converts that and binds to the CB2 receptor, which helps to modulate 
our immune and digestive system. In addition to the phytocannabinoids, there's a bunch of different ones. There's somewhere around 500 different chemicals in this plant. There's also other minor cannabinoids, uh, CBG, CBN, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there's also uh, terpenes. And what terpenes are, they're basically essential oils that a plant produces. So every mm-hmm. single plant has these essential oils that it produces. And cannabis, they work in, in concert with the cannabinoids to produce an effect. So to answer your question going back about what can cannabis do to benefit people, well, it depends on the individual. So for some people, it can actually uh, help them with uh, some feelings of depression. For some people, it can alleviate anxiety. For some people, it can alleviate pain, uh, then nausea. So there is there is uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of benefits to the plant about regulating your endocannabinoid system. But the key is to understand what it is that the person actually needs for themselves, because there's also uh, adverse effects that can happen if you're consuming something that's incorrect to you. You may experience something that you may not like. And Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that happens with people is that when they consume cannabis, THC itself is a vasodilator. Mm -hmm. And we're referring, just for everybody out there, we're referring to Delta 9 THC, right? Delta 9 THC, which is the decarboxylate. You're absolutely right. So when, which is a really good point. When you actually get the plant, the plant itself has all these molecules. They have an acid molecule, an A molecule. So it would be like THCA. So if you're eating the raw plant, you're not converting that. There's a process called decarboxylation, which happens is when you heat cannabis, the acid molecule drops off. And when it drops off, then you have that binding to the receptor and then you have that feeling. So you mm-hmm. absolutely, <clears throat> that's absolutely right. Uh, th- this is absolutely fascinating, Len. Uh, a couple of things that I just uh, want to, I guess, double click on a little bit because it, you mentioned the word receptors and yeah. you know people listening to the show know I'm a da- data geek. And so receptors imply a genetic involvement here. And yeah. uh, Let's let's talk a little bit about that, right? Because how different are perhaps you and I, are, um, myself and maybe my fiance, in terms mm-hmm. of our endocannabinoid systems? How much do we know about that? Well, <clears throat> the endocannabinoid system is pretty much the same. It's mm-hmm. the expression. So it's yeah. the, the way that we express those. So it's your epigenetic response and your genetics can kind of guide you into what the predisposition is. So, <clears throat> so from what I was saying about uh, vasodilator, which is a really good example. So what happens with people sometimes is they consume cannabis and like, oh no, cannabis is not for me. It makes me stress. It make, gives me anxiety. It makes me well, consume 10,000 calories or something. <laughs> exactly. Like I, don't, I don't want that stuff. That's, that's a side effect. Listen, it's, the, it's not the worst side effect you can have from medicine. I think Read all the side effects from every single medication that you take from-, uh, oh, from Or listen to the person. commercials, right? They just speed read it at the end. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it'll make you bleed out of your eyes and all that <laughs> stuff. I'm like, what, what? So, so what happens with people sometimes, and this is where the THC conversation uh, comes in, mm-hmm. uh, it's a vasodilator. So what's going to happen is constrict your blood vessels. Your heart's going to pump faster. And people get a little bit freaked out about that. They're like, oh my God, my, my heart's beating faster. I'm getting paranoid. I'm getting anxiety. But if you have a predisposition to anxiety or stress, what you're sort of heightening that experience for yourself. Now that gene that's dormant, that's sitting there, now you turn it on. It's expressed. It's being triggered. And a lot of it happens with high amounts of THC and also terpene profiles. So for some people, as they're consuming that, it can actually create a adverse effect. For me, uh, I'll give an example of how we can be different. So CBD, uh, yeah. which is cannabidiol. So it's, it's in everywhere. Everybody's selling CBD. <laughs> yes, that's I true. I saw CBD pillows and CBD underwear, which I don't remember, I'm not sure what that's going to do. Yeah. But okay, so there's, there's uh, this uh, phytocannabinoid or... Uh, called cannabidiol. And people say, well, I take it to sleep. It helps me sleep. Okay. Well, when I consume it, it doesn't do that. And when I consume CBD, it actually just makes me calm. Like I can watch stupid TV, but it doesn't make me sleepy. And then the person next to me, like maybe you, you can consume it. And it was like, oh my, it's, it's the best sleeping pill I've ever taken. So everybody's experience is different. And it definitely depends on 
in your in your endocannabinoid system in your own endogenous endocannabinoids okay so uh, at this point i think it's worth us kind of diving into the genetics right because um I've got somewhat of a background in understanding the probabilistic nature of genetics and how they work. Uh, but I was fascinated when you offered me the opportunity to upload my genome and just really get this research on myself. So first off, thank you for doing that. And, uh, you know, what we want to do for those who are listening to this, you can check out the YouTube video. Uh, we're going to go through my genetics here live. And for the record, I have not shared this with Len before, um, but we are going to go through them live and we're going to see uh, exactly what we can learn about the endocannabinoid system uh, through the genetic profile. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, does it help to give you uh, listeners a little bit of background, how you even got to this spot in, in genetics? Like I went from dispensaries and uh, yeah, actually, genetics. you know what? <laughs> Completely blanked, right? Because <laughs> uh, you went from dispensaries to activism, and let, let's. Well, talk I was an activist. That. I was an activist for uh, you know forever since I became the the president of the Cannabis Action Network, and mm -hmm. I'm still an activist in the way. And, and you were talking about activism, but uh, this was my aha moment. When we got shut down, I had access to what you just referred to as, as different strains, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with different cultivars of cannabis. And my goal has always been the therapeutic qualities of, of cannabis to help people. And so sort of underground, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional, but I've had you know, 27, 28 years of experience with this. Uh, anecdotal evidence is pretty good, especially in something that's prohibited. And when I see two people that have the same exact cultivar, they're given the same strain, and they have the same symptomatic condition, but it gives them a completely different effect, it sort of was a light bulb moment for me. And I became obsessed. So my ADD is like, I can multitask, do a million things at once, or I can hyper-focus on something that actually is like kicking dopamine in me. Uh, I'm hyper-focused. I became obsessed with trying to find what it is that is this difference maker. And I came across a video of a guy uh, named Kevin McKernan, who's the first person, one of the first people genetically sequenced cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I uh, reached out to him. Uh, long story, trying to make it short. Uh, I ended up working uh, directly with uh, with Kevin and, and learned how to extract DNA from plant material, how to purify DNA, and how to sequence that. And uh, we started the first uh, cannabis uh, genetic library called Canopedia, uh, where I can see we can like strains of Blue Dream or uh, was the name like, of a strain. So I can get five different Blue Dreams and I can genetically sequence them. And I can see like two of them are identical. The other two are cousins. They're not exactly the blue, blue dream. They're sort of a little bit of a hybrid, but at least they have the base of it. And then the other one is not even close to blue dream, but it's still called blue dream. So I, you know, these names of strains that people give them are really bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. It's all about the cannabinoid and terpene profile of what exactly it is. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they had a, a pharmacogenomics company that was their parent company that did genetic sequencing for disease states like mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, autism, epilepsy, cancer, cancer yeah. Yeah, et cetera. And uh, we had a meeting with doctors at Harvard Medical School that were treating kids with epilepsy using CBD at that time. And they all came and they were like, oh man, it's, it's amazing. We're going from uh, 100 seizures a day to zero. And then uh, some doctors said, we have some outliers. Uh, either it's not working for them or the seizures are coming back. So when we went through a genetic sequence of those kids, uh, we saw that they had a common uh, genetic uh, variant. Uh, they had a genetic variant in common, which was for a form of epilepsy, Dravet syndrome. And mm -hmm. we ended up publishing on that. And so Epidiolex was uh, really created, or GW Pharma uh, created this uh, first FDA-approved product based on the research looking at a specific type of epilepsy, not just epilepsy in general. And when that happened, I was just like, my mom was born. I said, there's other markers that we can go after. And they had no interest in it. They wanted to focus only on the plant, not the human side. Mm -hmm. So I took one of their scientists and uh, launched Endo, Endo Canada Health in 2017. So that's mm -hmm. kind of uh, the, the bridge of how we got to from the genetics to where we're doing that's today. fascinating i didn't realize you're involved in epidiolex and all all of that um well i wasn't i wasn't involved in gw pharma i'm just yeah, saying that yeah. We, yeah the we, research we just, that you did led to it right yeah so, uh, just it, 
so that people can get uh, comfort because a lot of the genetics tests, and this is the the fault of the direct to consumer test, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of tests out there that candidly are are crap in the sense. And I, I've gone through yours, and I know that's not that's not the case. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on the show talking to me right now. But uh, looking at uh, just sort of the amount of research behind cannabis genetics, can you mm-hmm. just Give us a little taste of how many papers go into uh, sort of what we're going to look at here in a second. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good question. There's two things that I want to point out. Number one is data security, and you know everybody's like, "Oh man, you're going to clone me? You're going to take my DNA?" Like, okay, if your DNA was that special, somebody would swab your Starbucks cup and have your DNA already. So yeah, we just just so your audience can know, we are collecting data. Absolutely collecting data. It's really, really important to learn from that data, but the data is fully anonymized. Uh, our, our information resides on Amazon's AWS platform, where HIPAA, uh, PEPITA, and all the different, uh, whatever the acronyms are, we're <laughs> yeah. fully compliant with all those uh, on AWS, which is like a 61-page paper. And the reason why we don't care about your boomers' data, specifically uh, your information. So the personal information is on one side, your uh, DNA resides on the other side. What we're trying to do is find, you know, use a thousand people with a similar genotype that have taken this type of formulation and it had a positive effect. So our AI would learn from that and we would then be better in making our suggestions. So I want to make sure and then your data is anonymized. So you have login and, and password. You're the only one that can see that. And the reason why you're sharing your information with me is because I can't see your information. I cannot yeah. uh, access your, your report. So I want to make sure that's that's really important to say. As far as research, there are people say there's not enough research in cannabis. There's not enough yeah, research. Yeah, this is a common complaint, right? Yeah, not enough. Well, there's over 18,000 uh, studies that have been published in PubMed and CBI alone. And so what we do is every single uh, piece of information has to have a peer-reviewed reference associated with that. Not only that, but we also have a science team that I think is, uh, is a pretty impressive science team that we our AI flags those studies from all over the world, universities uh, in Australia, in Europe, in Israel. And then we have a grading system for them. Mm-hmm. So if it's a uh, if it's a study associated with uh, you know ten men, uh, thirty to thirty five in in Asia, uh, it's going to get thrown out. It's not yeah. a good enough study. Uh, so the studies have have a weight system in vivo, in vitro, etc. How many? And then they end up going through our human side, and we make sure that uh, those studies qualify. And the third thing I want to say is that it's ongoing. It's a learning system. So it's a new study. I gets uh, somebody publishes and we're involved in research too. We're doing two clinical uh, trials and three observational studies under institutional review boards. So as studies become uh, published and peer reviewed, our AI brings it in. So you always have lifetime updates as new research gets done. So hopefully that answers. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, look, thank you for sharing that because I know the audience cares a lot about just how good the the data source is. And so Mm -hmm. let's, um, Let's, if it's okay with you, I want to dive into this a little bit. Let's do it. All right. So for those listening, you might want to check out the YouTube right now because we're going to dive a little bit into my genetics and what, what we can learn about my endocannabinoid system. Not directly related to cannabis, but a fungus that we've had a multi-thousand year relationship with is mushrooms. And who do I go to for my mushrooms? We're not talking about psychedelic mushrooms today. We're going to talk about really medicinal mushrooms. And what do I mean by that? Lion's mane, turkey tail, shiitake, maitake, reishi, and so many others. I get mine from Kappa Health, and you should get yours from there too. Head on over to kappahealth.com, that's K-A-A-P-A health.com, and use the code BOOMER because you're going to get 10% off your purchase. And these mushrooms are fresh from the Finnish nature. And if you know anything about Finland, you know that it is a lot of forests. Head on over to kappahealth.com, use the code BOOMER, and you're going to get your discount today. So this is this is gonna be like reading tea leaves. 
<laughs> All right. So you, you're going to know more about me than most people in the world after this lens. So let's, uh, let's take, you know, I'll follow your lead here. Um, well, now, now the whole world's going to know about you, not just yeah, me. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I am a human guinea pig and I am right. uh, willing to open my kimono to all seven plus billion people in this, this planet. So, so yeah, I just right. want to, I just want to kind of describe what we're looking at uh, sure. to a little bit. So this is you, you went off the homepage to the report overview and the report overview is, is a quick summary. And what that does is color coded. So what green means next to these is means that there's no variant detected. So there's no genetic risk. What yellow means that there is a variant detected. So under a category, there's a signal variant that's detected, and that has an increased risk uh, of that, uh, you know, uh, symptomatic condition being expressed. And then you have a genetic predisposition. And then red means you have multiple variants detected in a certain category, and that gives you an exponentially higher risk of that poly, polymorphism uh, being expressed. So we have categories, and underneath the category, uh, there are subcategories, and there's reports for each one of them. So what we're looking at is the anxiety report. So you have three, uh, just to start, dive right in there. So you have yeah, three. Yeah, we, we might as well. I'm pretty open book on my history of anxiety, so right. we can. Okay, well, I don't, we, we don't know each other. I'm yeah, just, exactly. Just, we're so, we're going to know each other after this. But. <laughs> yeah, now, now I know you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, uh, look, uh, history of anxiety, perfectionism, all of that stuff. Okay. So when uh, when well, I opened this up, I was fairly I was very interested and not surprised at that first one. Well, this is this is a really interesting one, and I'll tell you, this is this is a basis of why people have adverse experiences with cannabis. And anxiety is a big one. And so you have three variants uh, in each one of the, you have a variant in each one of the three reports, fear, extinction, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or a, a form of that and stress reactivity. So why don't you click on stress reactivity? Uh, uh, I'm first. glad you picked that one. Cause that was the one I wanted to click on. All right, let's, let's go for that. Uh, here we go. Yeah. And, and I'll explain, and I'll explain that, um, the stress reactivity part of it. So what happens is when when you have, and you'll go into the reports, I'll read it. Basically, it says, uh, it gives you an overview of what the report, uh, uh, what the symptomatic condition is. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a summary of findings. Uh, overall, your endocannabinoid system genotype is associated with a higher risk of stress reactivity. This can raise your risk of developing an anxiety disorder, monitor for symptoms of high anxiety, Practice stress reduction techniques and seek professional help if you feel anxiety uh, impacting your life. So, this is a really interesting uh, gene. So, it'll give you the suggestion, but scroll down a little bit, uh, yep. and so we can get into the science. And I want to talk Ooh, about this gene Let's let's get into this because yeah. this. I want to talk important. about FOB. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the fatty uh, acid amyhydrolase. So, what FOB does? It's a really really interesting. Um, it's an interesting, produce an interesting enzyme. So remember, we talked about anandamide. So mm -hmm. anandamide is released out of your amygdala part of your brain for the most part. Fa produces an enzyme that degrades or breaks down anandamide. So for your audience, think about it this way. And I don't want to get way too sciencey, but I, I use the analogy of like Pac-Man. Mm -hmm. So Pac-Man would eat up anandamide. Fa is that Pac-Man. The more fa you have, the less anandamide you have. So this is what happens in stress. And you know this uh, really well, and I'm sure your audience knows, you have a stressful event, somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever it is, all these chemicals are pumping through your bloodstream. You have your adrenaline, you have your dopamine, you have neuropinephrine, you have your cortisol that's pumped through. And then all of a sudden you realize there is no lion chasing you in the jungle. It's safe. So your body has to get back to normal. One of the things that it does, it releases an andamite. So an anandamide mm -hmm. then will help to get your body back to homeostasis. But if you produce too much fa because you're genetically predisposed to that, you produce less anandamide. So that mm -hmm. stress reactivity seems to linger much longer, last much longer, be activated much faster, and the cortisol kind of stays in your bloodstream. And after a while, uh, it raises your pH level, which makes you more acidic, your <laughs> immune system then wants to attack that, uh, have an overactive immunal response. And what happens, a lot of people say, you know, my, my joints hurt, my ankles hurt, this and that. Well, you're walking around with uh, cortisol, you're acidic, yeah, your pH level is too high. So knowing this in advance, 
we know that phytocannabinoids like THC can actually subsidize uranandamide as we learn. Mm-hmm. But here's a trick. If you take too much THC, and this is what we're talking about, going full circle back to these rituals and these ceremonies. Uh, I, was, I was in a show with a guy, just to give an example. And he's like, yeah, man, we, I equate a joint to a beer. And, I'm like, and the guy, is, he's an older fellow. That may have been in the 70s when, you, when you're consuming cannabis, yeah. like 7% THC, not anymore. We bred into having high THC. What happens to people with this genotype is that too much THC can actually trigger that stress reactivity, can create that anxiety for you. So understanding that a little bit is a subsidy that you need and different terpene profiles. So things like limonene, um, pinene that help boost serotonin levels, and it can create that anxiety and stress as well. But things like lavender, uh, uh, linalool that comes from lavender, uh, you have that smell that can actually lower the uh, the stress. And I'll go into that in a second. But <clears throat> anyway, so fa. So scroll down a little bit in your report, and let's see what your genotype is on that. Uh, so it says a boomer, you may experience more anxiety when stressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're looking at phi is the gene. We're looking at, there's an RSID, which shows you the location where it is in the chromosome, and it gives you your genotype. And so genotype for, for those who may not know, your, your genes uh, uh, have like a, a, a computer speaking a binary code, ones and zeros. Your genes speak in nucleotides, it's a T, an A, and a G. The combination of those letters are your genotype. Uh, when you have two of the same letters that you inherited from your parents, it's called homozygous, two different ones. It's called a heterozygous, sort of one-on-one uh, for those who know. So you have a homozygous allele combination, it's called, in mm-hmm. that polymorphism, which actually uh, heightens your anxiety levels when stressed. And cannabis can, be, can activate that, or it can help to alleviate that, so depending on how much you take. The other thing on the report that I want to point out is there's a, a reference link to each yeah. one of those reports that takes you to uh, an NCBI database so you can see what studies associate with that. The other thing is how do you compare to other populations? So if you want to click on that uh, for a second, that yeah. <clears throat> so what this does, it shows you different population groups uh, based on your genetic heritage. It may be much more prevalent in a population that is uh, of European descent mm-hmm. that is uh, then in Asian descent, et cetera. So you understanding your, your heritage uh, is also important to know how, how rare is this genotype because in East Asian population, it's very, very prevalent. You have you know, over 60% of population that has this uh, genotype, close to 70% um, that are walking around with that stress reactivity gene. So understanding mm-hmm. that is really important also. Mm-hmm. So we can establish uh, just by knowing FAAH, that yeah. uh, uh, our genotypes, we can almost kind of establish what could potentially be a dose-dependent curve for us, right? Like where it, I could over-trip and uh, trigger anxiety yeah. in a way for THC. Yeah. So it's it's dose and it's also the cannabinoid, the formulation, the cannabinoid terpene profile, which I'll mm-hmm. get to in in, uh, in one minute. And so we scroll down. I just wanted to show, you can close out of that. <clears throat> I just wanted to show the... Uh, uh, at the bottom of this, so it says you may have experienced more anxiety when stressed, etc. Uh, that's your uh, that's your genotype. If you scroll on the bottom, mm-hmm. uh, it has an FAQ. So on the, on the FAQ, uh, if people want to learn a little bit more, uh, how is the endocannabinoid system involved in stress? You can get it gives you one uh, really quick uh, definition, or you can click on and get a lot more. Uh, basically, what I just talked about. In, in terms of metabolizing and and uh, uh, anandamide being uh, uh, degraded by by fa. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, Len, should I go back and we can go down? Yeah, yeah. One sc- of these scroll, scroll. Well, just scroll up. I just want to just explain, and you can go up. Uh, I just want to explain the, the solution part of it because we. Yeah, found that, I think that's definitely worthwhile because uh, you know this actually coincides very well with some of the, I guess you can say ratios that I've played with that work really well for me. So uh, I would love to just hear how you guys so came up with this. What it, what it says is uh, 20 to 1 to 4 to 1. We have a survey that wasn't taken. The survey allows us to know what your uh, experience with THC is so we can get a personalized wellness plan. It's a little bit more geared to you. 
which you'll, you'll see. But what we're talking about is if, uh, starting from a 20 to 1 to 4 to 1, but you're probably good with more of a balanced ratio. Uh, and the reason why is, and also your primary and secondary terpene profile, which is really important. So if you click on the word response, where it talks about the ingredients, mm-hmm. I just want to show your audience how to best utilize the report. Uh, we, we already learned, learned about cannabinoids, but if you click on the word linalool, so linalool uh, may lessen the anxiety that's provoked by THC. And as uh, you always can see, uh, there's also uh, studies associated with that. So what linalool does, if you're consuming limonene as a primary terpene, it actually boosts your serotonin and can create more anxiety. It's better for people who have a sort of depressive feeling. Mm-hmm. So if I'm, if I'm connecting it to strains, uh, think of it as more of a, an indica dominant versus a sativa dominant, uh, okay. even though there's no really such thing anymore as indicas and sativas because we bred all that stuff out. But the original indica type of, uh, of cultivars, they came from Southeast Asia. And the reason why they were even called indica is because the plant itself produced a defense mechanism. It was under stress. So you have uh, four seasons, uh, you know, snow and it's harsh environment, and you have predators that are attacking this plant. So the plant itself under stress produced a terpene profile that, that had a, an odor of skunky, diesel kind of smell. So if you isolate that, that's associated with myrcene, which is associated with a high indica dominant strain. Mm-hmm. And the, the sativas, uh, they uh, originated in more of a Caribbean climates, uh, in, in Africans, like South Africa, warmer climates that didn't have that kind of stress. They look different. They stretch the sun. And they have a different smell. So if you smell them, like your nose really knows, they smell a little bit fruitier. They don't have that musky, skunky smell. And it has to do with limonene, which is a primate terpene. And, and then some of them, they grew up, uh, they grew in, in, uh, in a piney region. They, they smell like pine needles a little bit. So you understand your, your nose really knows. And, and when you're consuming something that's very high sativa dominant, that can be that trigger for you to have that stress reactivity. So wow. I just want to preface that. So uh, linalool is also found in lavender mm-hmm. and it's a calming terpene and beta caryophyllum, which is your secondary uh, terpene profile that helps to reduce inflammation. That's probably associated with that whole uh, cortisol release. Yeah. And that's found in black pepper and clove as well, but in, in very high amounts in, uh, in cannabis as well. Wow. Uh- Lynn, this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, can, just is this an appropriate time to introduce the idea of the entourage effect, uh, which I think you're kind of absolutely. explaining here, uh, but just for the people that are are listening, uh, just defining the entourage effect for them. Yeah. So the the great Dr. Ethan Russo, uh, who's actually uh, our uh, chairs our science board, uh, he refers to. This, this amazing plant working in concert. So I kind of alluded to it a little bit before. Mm-hmm. There's somewhere around 500 different uh, chemicals that are found in this plant. We don't know what they all are. You can actually see them when you're doing a test. You can see that there are certain chemicals that appear. We haven't identified all of them yet, but they're there. So the idea is this plant, we're isolating single molecules. Like you, you or, or I, I don't remember who brought up Epidiolex, uh first, but they're isolating a molecule. So we're looking at one single molecule and they're putting some additives in there. And that molecule is specific to uh, that, you know, disease state, uh, which is epilepsy or Dravet syndrome. But you're looking at all these different molecules and the, the entourage effect is them working in concert together to produce an effect. So you have, you have cannabinoids, uh, which are the, the primary genetics of this plant. And then you have the terpenes, the, the essential oils of the plant. And they work together to create a, an experience. And the, that plan has 500 different chemicals. You have millions of different uh, genes. In order to take this complex plan and combine it with the complexity that you have, that's really the key to getting what is more dialed in to you, mm-hmm. uh, including dosing, including all those things. So having all these things work together uh, that the entourage effect is the cannabinoids, the flavonoids, the terpenes, all those things for a certain um, profile of the plant working together in concert for a certain experience for an individual. Thank you for, for walking through that. Uh, 
Len, I want to be cognizant of your time here. So if it's yeah, okay man. with you, we'll go back to the report and I want to take people through just the different line items that we cover. And then I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into just one of those, uh, if it's sure. okay. Yep. All right. So uh, Len, if you don't mind, I can scroll down and you can just walk people through uh, what we're- Yeah. What so we're the, the reports are you know, anxiety, which you have uh, variants detected there. They have cogn uh, cognitive function behavior. Uh, which has ADHD, impulsivity. You don't have any variants there. Uh, some digestive reports. And I just wanted to let your audience know that it's it's not just about cannabis. It's the whole endocannabinoid system. So every all these different things, how you consume, it's not just one thing. It's what you put in your body, what you put in your mind. Uh, all these different things affect your overall health and wellness. And the report looks at a lot of those things uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, drug dependence, uh, you have multiple variants on uh, opioid dependence. This we're we're going to come back to that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's go. I, I just want to make sure we cover the rest of the report. Yeah. Uh, just mention drug metabolism really quickly because this is about dosing. Uh, mm -hmm. So there is the series of genes called cytochrome P450, uh, which produce enzymes, as uh, you probably uh, are aware, that help you metabolize different things. There are certain ones for CBD and THC. And this is really important for when people consume different types of uh, cannabis, especially if they take an edible. Because some people have a really, really bad experience with edible. Firstly, your liver converts THC to a substance called 11-oxyhydroxide, 11-OH, we'll just leave it at that. And it can be five to 50 times more powerful depending on who you are for certain people. So I've got calls over the last like, three, four years, people... I'm going to the hospital. I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm ODing on cannabis. What did you consume? I consumed an edible. Some people who are poor metabolizers, they can have a very, very intense experience with an edible. So and that's one of the It could be problems. very, so this is one of the most fascinating parts of the report to me because the THC has that, as you alluded to, that uh, very different effect on certain people, but it can also last up to, I think, 72 hours in terms of how long it takes to metabolize in people. Do I have that right? Or am I just Yeah, crazy? correct. Correct. Yeah, correct. Uh, okay. So going down here, we talked a little bit about fitness um, yeah. and then host susceptibility reports. We got, we got to talk a little bit about this too. Yeah, that's this immune susceptibility. So mm -hmm. we, what we're trying to tell people during you know the time of uh, that we're all in right now is to be aware that some people have some predispositions to uh, severity of influenza, allergic reunites, which is really allergies, et cetera, influenza. So just be aware that there is a, an association with that in the, uh, in, you know, coronaviruses like, like influenza. So just be aware uh, that you have to work on your immune system a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then metabolism reports, uh, just regular metabolism, body fat metabolism, obesity, weight management, uh, mood. That's uh, that's an interesting one. You have uh, uh, several yeah, variants detected in uh, major depressive feelings. It's, that's interesting because I don't have a, I have a history with the other end of that spectrum, which is anxiety, not necessarily depression. Seasonal mood problems, maybe this is uh, another <laughs> support data point to support that move to California at some point. I'm telling you, man, I, I, I have, I, just in full disclosure, I have a very similar uh, profile on the, on the mood. I never knew that about myself either. I'm like, I'm a pretty happy guy, but I hated the, the winter time in Philly. It was just yeah. the worst. And I'm just like, I have a smile on my face when I'm walking around in t-shirt in January in LA. So that, that it's a it, similar thing. I lived in Singapore for six years, which there's the, the variance in temperature is like five degrees Fahrenheit uh, the entire year. And right. moving to Amsterdam that first year, I was like, why do I feel so just awful during the winter? Yeah. But apparently it's explained in my, my genetics here. Well, I think you brought up a really good point about genetic predispositions and expression of those genes, mm -hmm. which is yeah. you can have a gene that's fully dormant and it just sits there and nothing. I'm like, I'm good. All of a sudden that switch, you did something and that switch turned on. And now yeah. that it's on, now what you want to do is turn it off. And that's, uh, and, and this is where knowledge becomes power. You're really empowering an individual to have a very intelligent conversation with a healthcare professional or themselves so they can be empowered to take better uh, a course of action to help themselves. And I think during this whole age of COVID and telemed and, and understanding that we can get better control over our own health and wellness, I think that reports like this or getting as much knowledge about yourself is, is really, really important. 
Incredibly well said. And uh, again, taking, I, I kind of find uh, certain publications not to be named, to be uh, nauseous in terms of the idea that everything can work for 7 billion people, but it's data and information like this that takes it from 7 billion and makes it that N of one. And so you can actually have right. the unique performance experience that you need. Uh, so I guess the last one, Len, that I want to touch on is that yeah. opioid dependence, uh, because- yeah. That was one that came back in, you know, I've had one doctor that prescribed me Oxycontin when I was younger for a concussion. And I was thankfully only on it for a day. But, you know, looking at this, it, it's, you know, obviously it doesn't sound like there's certain drugs out there that I should be touching. Uh, and, and I just, if you don't mind, I'd love you to just take us through this. Uh, if you can. Yeah. So what it, what this report says, you may have uh, multiple endocannabinoid system genotypes associated with increased risk of opioid dependence. Um, regardless of uh, genotype, opiates are highly addictive, et cetera, seek professional help. So I had a very similar story to you. I had my wisdom teeth out, I don't know, 15 years ago, and uh, it's coming out. I was walking out and the doctor's like, yeah, something, something dry socket. I didn't even hear because I was sort of still under the influence. And I, uh, and I got home and all of a sudden, I started getting this pain that I've never felt like this in my life. Uh, my wife at that time called the doctor and said, oh, uh, he's got a dry socket, which means that uh, your nerve is exposed to the air. I mean, the pain was just unbearable. Wow. And he prescribed Oxycontin. And uh, I took one and it knocked me out. I've never, I, I've had my experience with uh, substances uh, when I was younger. I've never felt anything like this. I knew instinctually- to sort of get away from this stuff. So mm-hmm. very similar to what you're saying, but what doctors do now using our test, they're looking at opioid predisposition for people and saying, you have a predisposition to opioid dependence, maybe try cannabis instead. So doctors are starting to open up their minds because there's science behind it. And what they, um, a lot of doctors don't want to have their patients say, you know, depend on, on opioids, but there was no other alternative alternative because, you know, pharmas, that's what you have. So this allows people to see that you know, there's four of us together. Three of us consume an opioid and nothing, and one of us can be in the, uh, immediately get dependent on that opioid. And that's mm-hmm. the thing that we want to avoid, so we can you know get rid of this uh, opioid epidemic. Yeah, this epidemic that we're in—it's crazy. I just want to touch on a little bit on the gene here, and then yeah. I have one more question before you before I let you go. Yeah, no, CNR one, so absolutely, that's the, the the gene we're looking at, and that that gene is also associated with uh, a lot of different markers uh, in in um, in using cannabinoids, uh, some of those stress markers as well. And if you want to scroll down a little bit, and we'll get into the the report uh, itself from that gene. So you're looking at. Uh, CNR1, uh, homozygous genotype CC, and that's what it says, Boomer, you may have a slightly uh, greater risk of opiate dependence uh, than the average population. And there are studies associated with that. So that that's really, really, I, I, I'm like I said, I'm the same way. And this is something that I already instinctually felt, but people really need to know that, you know, some people are predisposed to opiate dependence. Some people are predisposed to psychostimulant dependence. And when people say, you know, I've taken opioids uh, for pain and it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. You may not have the genetic predisposition, but somebody next to you that consumes exactly the same thing will, uh, can trigger, may trigger that genetic predisposition. And that's the case. Now it becomes like, you know, not, not to kind of be a bummer on this, but in Philly over the last 10 years, I lost 10, 10 friends that I grew up with and all mm-hmm. of them passed from opioids originally. Some, a lot of them started with uh, just pills for pain or whatever it is. And then it got progressively worse and worse and worse. And this is something that we absolutely, everybody, I, I urge and, and every single healthcare professional, whoever you are, just take a look at a, somebody's genetic predispositions to these substances before you prescribe it to them. I know yeah. that we've, we've been in this cycle, but just be aware that some people you know, everything is personalized. Some people will have this experience and some people are not. So this is a great way to be able to guide people uh, that have this predisposition. Len, this has been an absolute pleasure because I I know we're running up on time here and I'm already going to invite you back for round two (laughs) because there's so many more things that uh, I want to pick your brain on, particularly with the history of cannabis and all of your expertise in the industry. 
perhaps let's just close on uh, just one final question, which is yeah. sort of burning in my head. When does legalization happen and how can people get involved in accelerating that process? Yeah. Um, legalization is an interesting word. Um, you live in Amsterdam. Uh, so legalization is something that people perceive there to be from, you know, the early uh, 90s. Mm -hmm. It's decriminalized. It's not legal, as uh, we were discussing prior to, uh, uh, to the recording. What, what the administration in the United States has said, that they will decriminalize cannabis, the new uh, president uh, and his administration. What decriminalization means, I'm not exactly sure. What needs to happen is it needs to be descheduled and possibly rescheduled. So we already know that it has medicinal uh, substances. Uh, and, and we already know that people have an individual experience. So I don't believe in recreational. I've never believed in recreational. I believe in adult use. So when mm -hmm. people say I'm in California and it's a rec state, well, this isn't recreational. Nothing that changes anything within your, your body, your brain, it is a drug. It is a substance that yeah. has that, and it needs to be controlled. Not saying that somebody over 21, which is the age in, in California, can go and purchase it. But the, the issue that I want everybody to address in government in terms of uh, legalizing is, is we need to have protocols in place that allow people to know what they're putting in their bodies. So I believe that uh, the next couple of years during this administration in the U.S., we will have a process in place for being able to test effectively, to be able to have labels so we know that there's a nutraceutical uh, type of approach to it. We know exactly what we're putting in our bodies. There's regulations in place for everything, and it's standardized. That's the first step to get out of the shadows of this is an illicit substance, illicit drug, and all that stuff. Now, in parallel, there is going to be this pharmaceutical approach. There's been 12 patents awarded last year to different cannabis companies, which has more than been in, in decades. Wow. And this is all looking at individual molecules, like you mentioned, GW Pharmaceuticals. So in my opinion, there's going to be a dual path. In the next few years during this uh, administration in the United States, which will be leading, and I know that you know Canada and Uruguay, and now Mexico, and all these different countries, uh, Israel, they're leading the way in terms of uh, research and in terms of federal programs. But the United States still has this beacon. They are still what the world looks to on their drug policies and mm -hmm. happened from prohibition. So this is where in the next few years, I think there's going to be a change in rescheduling of uh, cannabis, not as a schedule one substance. Second of all, there's going to be a pharmaceutical play that's going to start focusing on individual molecules. So we'll have, you know, <clears throat> going into your vitamin shop, probably nutraceutical types. And, and that, you know, CBD is a big part of that now. We're seeing it everywhere, but there's going to be other cannabinoids that are added to that. And maybe THC, uh, just isolated, uh, will be more of a pharmaceutical by sub subscription, uh, by prescription only kind of thing. So that's Amazing. Well, my opinion. Len, I want to leave it there because <laughs> you hit another area that I can go down a wormhole with you on, <laughs> perhaps on round two on the right. other cannabinoids, because I'm, I'm fascinated by things like CBN, CBG, and yep. some of the other ones, but perhaps that's going to be for another time. Sure. Thank you so much uh, for this and all the work you've done in the cannabis industry. I'm like, this has been an amazing conversation and I hope to continue it in the future. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. To all the superhumans listening out there, you need to check out the YouTube on this one, but have an absolutely epic day. All right. So what did I get out of that podcast? Aside from really learning from basically one of the originals in the cannabis industry, I enjoyed our deep dive into genetics, of course. And like I've said before, I don't usually endorse a genetics test because most of them don't really hold you up to snuff. This one was different. We looked at my cannabinoid receptors, both CB1 and CB2 and their genetic predispositions. We looked at things like opioid dependence. And if you 
we're having trouble following that on the audio version of this podcast, I encourage you to go over to the Decoding Superhuman YouTube channel and watch it there. If you enjoyed this podcast and want me to have Len back for a round two, email me, podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com or even better, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review because every single review helps and gets the word out on this show. Superhumans, I love you all from the bottom of my heart. And I look forward to next week where we are going to tackle another aspect of health optimization leading to performance optimization. Have an epic day.